Hello, welcome to another episode of Revolutionary Dispatches with me, Chris Wright. And me, David Bryan. Hello, David. Hello. It's all it's all going. I can't say what I want to say because we'll lose our clean rating on iTunes, but <laughs> the proverbial is hitting the fan. Yes. For those Quite who, hard. Yeah. For those who've been living under a rock, essentially the situation is this. The entire British government is about to collapse around our ears. Yep. So Theresa May, our glorious Prime Minister, has managed to lose two cabinet secretaries inside a week. Mm-hmm. To lose one, to lose one would be unfortunate, but to lose two really starts to look like carelessness. Well, she lost one, and then decided to use that as a sort of impromptu reshuffle opportunity, all of a sudden, sort of out of nowhere. And then, having concluded that, lost another one. So the first secretary to go down was Michael Fallon, hmm. who resigned over... Well, he didn't make it quite clear. He essentially stated to the press that he felt he had fallen short of the high standards expected of the armed services. Not that he's actually mm. a member of the armed services. Which, at the point when he said that, the only allegation against him was a fairly minor one, relatively speaking, that he had once touched the knee some years ago of uh, the journalist uh, Julia Hartley Brewer, who had since sort of basically said that she didn't care that much and mm. she was over it. So it seemed at the time that there must have been something else bubbling away under the surface, and indeed it now appears that is the case. Yeah. Because I believe her name's Jane Merrick came out. She'd approached... Anna Subri, the Conservative MP, and also Harriet Hartman, the former Labour deputy leader, hmm. and essentially said that there had been a historical incident of sexual harassment uh, involving her and Michael Fallon. Anna Subri then took that to the Prime Minister, and then that was what prompted his Michael Fallon's resignation. Yeah. And since then, Jane Merrick, she's um, come out in the press, waived her anonymity in order to make a point, I think. So yes, this is the sort of the biggest scalp so far in the Westminster sexual harassment scandal. Hmm. which has kind of um, blown up in the last couple of weeks, spilling over from America, where it all started. It's it's a very interesting kind of phenomenon, the way that something which started with an American Hollywood executive has become such a, a huge part now of the British political scene. Yes. I think it's very um, it's very telling about how interconnected the two cultures are and also how the, the kind of structures of power are the same across like, different areas of, of what you might loosely term the, the establishment. Yes. And this hasn't really spread to or from other European countries? No. It's, it seems to be at the moment entirely a kind of Anglosphere phenomenon. I mean, really, it's only Britain and America. Yeah, it's not like uh, Canada's really been hit by it. No, or Australia or anywhere like that. I wonder what that means, because I'm, I'm sort of suspicious of the idea that those two countries don't have the same problem. It's just not coming out in them. But this, this also seems to fit into... Um, there's a sort of, in British government history, governments tend to have a lifespan of about maybe eight or nine years... And if they're really, really, if, if they do really well, maybe 10 or 11 years or something. But eventually they start accumulating scandals and they stop being able to avoid more scandals. And this Conservative government, I mean, it, it never really won an election properly. So it's always been slightly fragile and it's now been in power seven years. So it seems like it's getting to the point where it's just piling up scandals and it, it's getting too tired to be able to deal with them properly anymore. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not in fairness to the Tories, which is not something I like to say mm. too often. It isn't a peculiarly conservative thing either oh no 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 there have been allegations against um, Labour MPs in particular um, Mm. and I'm sure there are probably other parties who may well be implicated in the coming weeks and the Labour member of the Welsh Senate yes Uh, took his own life he did yes yeah certainly seems to suggest there's something in whatever allegations were levelled at him in any case Mm. but the reason why it's it's sort of impacting the Tories more is because it's taken out their defence secretary Yes. Oh, yes. This is the thing that Michael Fallon hasn't been suspended, which is, which is a thing that very often happens when there's a scandal in the government. 
the affected person resigns from the government, but then nothing else happens. And being an MP is still a very high-profile, very, very senior role in British politics. Yeah, there was an article to that effect in the New Statesman about a week ago, sort of saying that same thing, that Michael Fallon considers himself to have fallen below the standard expected as Defence Secretary, but not as an MP. Hmm. So representing the constituents who elected him is not as prestigious a job in his mind as working with the government. This is a very strange thing where um, in no other job for this sort of thing would... Because often the media describe this sort of thing as being sacked or resigning or whatever. But it isn't really. What they've done is they've been demoted to a slightly less senior but still very senior role. Also the fact that there's no official union representation for um, MP staff. There is a branch of Unite for the parliamentary estate, but it's not recognised by Parliament. MPs have to recognise it on an ad hoc basis. Right. So obviously lots of the Labour MPs, majority of Labour MPs recognise it, but it goes less recognised among, for example, the Conservative Party. I mean, some Tory MPs do recognise it, but not all of them. Uh. Understandably, because it's a organisation which is expressly affiliated with their political opponents. So if they're given the option, they're yeah, not yeah. going, you know, they, they'd have to be very altruistic to recognise it. That's why it shouldn't be an option. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it might just be partly that, that why he's still an MP. It's particularly true at the moment because the government's so fragile and it doesn't even have a majority. And even with its, its uh, sort of not exactly coalition, but confidence partners still have a tiny majority. They don't really have the room to lose an MP. I, I think they're... They were nine short of a majority, I think, at the election. And I think the DUP only have ten MPs. So at the moment, the Conservatives have 370 MPs, two of whom are currently suspended. Um, Labour have 262, two of whom are currently suspended. So yes, the DUP have ten. So 327. So they don't actually only have to lose... Actually, technically they don't have a majority at the moment. If Shin... Yeah, technically they don't have a majority. Sinn Féin don't turn up, so that gives them extra four yeah. to play with. It's, it's very, very fragile. If they lose four more suspens- suspensions, hmm. they won't have a majority, which is pretty tight going. I mean, it, it makes John Major and the Maastricht rebels hmm. look positively plain sailing. The thing is that the nature of this, of the abuse, is that it's abuse of power, and yet he's not been kicked out of the position of enormous political power that he's in. As an MP, which is the whole problem starts in the first place. I mean, I don't think it is... Most yeah, of the allegations yeah. are coming from civil servants. MPs have stuff. Political stuff. Oh, yeah. I noticed something when doing research for this. I didn't realise that in order to be actually removed from your seat, you have to be convicted of something with a sentence of over a year in prison. That seems crazy that you can, you can be arrested and incarcerated for anything less than a year and it doesn't disqualify you from remaining an MP throughout all of that and then carrying on as an MP afterwards. Not officially. I mean, I think, obviously, if that were to happen, there'd be extreme pressure on you to resign. You would not actually be required to. Technically, you can't actually resign as an MP, but um, you have to... No, don't they have to appoint you to a meaningless title in the aristocracy so that you technically are disqualified from being an MP? It's not within the aristocracy. It's a minor position within the um, Duchy of Lancaster. And if you work for the Queen, oh, right. you, work for the Queen you obviously can't sit in Parliament. Um, right, and so they, they invent a new title for you. Yeah, I forget what it's called. The Chiltern Hundreds. Crown Steward and Bailiff right. of the Chiltern Hundreds and of the Manor of Northstead. Because, yeah. They appoint you that? Yes, that's the official title. Because if you have an office of profit under the Crown, you're not eligible to sit as an MP. That's how you officially get out of it. Yes. But there is also the fact that, aside from this, Fallon is quite nasty anyway. He's not a good guy. We're very glad he's gone. Yes, I mean, he's been used, essentially, as May's attack dog. He's always willing to sort of turn up on, on TV. Yes, he'll, he'll say stuff which is quite likely to get some very, very negative sort of sideways looks from the press. 
in order to sound out the waters and see if other Tories can get away with repeating it afterwards. Yeah, he's yeah he's a bit of a bully. Not particularly effective mm. as a defence secretary either, by all reports. I very much enjoyed seeing there was a during the election campaign he was on I think the Andrew Marr show with Emily Thornberry. All oh, right, and she ambushed him with some question about. Yeah, I seem to remember that. Yeah, yeah, I, I enjoyed watching that. It's quite funny. Well, I mean Emily Thornberry is very very good. Even, yeah, even, I like even a decent defence secretary would struggle, I think, to um, yeah, yeah. repost. <laughs> but yes, Michael Fallon certainly doesn't fall into that category. <laughs> so anyway, he's gone, and his replacement is Mr. Gavin Williamson, who is an interesting choice. He's the former chief whip, which means that he is the owner of the infamous spreadsheet that you may have seen floating around the internet in a redacted form, uh, listing various Tory MPs and their uh, sexual misdemeanors so everything ranging from consensual affairs that are kind of you know perfectly morally fine as far as i'm concerned but might seem dodgy coming from a tory mp all the way through to um allegations of rape uh there's a very wide range of different things that are presented on this spreadsheet which has been very big covered with all the skeletons in it exactly um so he has had this spreadsheet since he's been chief whip which is i think about a year now um before he was chief whip he was uh, David Cameron's personal uh, secretary. Um, so hmm. he knew all of this before it blew up. So it's very, very odd that Theresa May has decided to appoint him to replace someone who's just been forced out because of a sexual harassment scandal. And it very much suggests that she's completely lost control, even the pretense of control. Because yes, what she doesn't really have any other options. She just needs someone that she knows is is going to support her government. Hmm in the position of Defence Secretary. And the whisper on the street is actually that Gavin Williamson has sort of promoted himself. Um, oh, really? Yeah, he's supposed to be... V- he's been floating around in relatively sort of senior positions within the party and the government yeah. for a while, but never actually like a member of the government, never a government minister. No, well, he has a tarantula called Kronos. <laughs> he keeps on his desk in his office. Which Odd name for a tarantula. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. That's Kronos. King of the Titans. Not Kronos. Which is oh, it's irritating. I've seen this. A number of articles have been I've seen talking about Cronus, and they say, "Oh, it's the Greek god of time." No, Cronus is the Greek god of time. Cronus is, as you say, the king of the Titans, the father of Zeus. Two different, yes. two completely different characters, conflated by the Romans inaccurately. Anyway, that's just a, mm. a minor mythological bugbear. Of mine. Um, yes, the Titans being the uh, the pantheon before the Olympians. Indeed, indeed. In in Greek myth, yes. But um, so yeah, so he's he's the new defense secretary, despite having no discernible qualifications for the job other than his tarantula which yeah, I suppose he could threaten Kim Jong-un with his came but yeah he, he fancies himself a bit of a Francis Urquhart I think which is yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> slightly fraught comparison given other allegations against other people across the channel but we won't be diverted well you might that. think that I couldn't possibly comment <laughs> <laughs> yes for anyone who doesn't get that joke you need to watch House of Cards <laughs> the original British series which has no known rapists in it to my knowledge no. Um, and it's much, much better. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, sorry, yes, I get what you're saying now. Yeah. But um, So, yeah, so he's, he's the new Defence Secretary, and it very much does appear that Theresa May has completely lost the plot, which leads us yep. to Pretty Patel. Yes, yes, that's where it was left until very, very recently. <laughs> Pretty Patel has also been forced to resign. What was her position again? She was the uh, Secretary of State for the Department of International Development. Right, So, yes. Pat- Patel is a very, 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 very right-wing Tory MP. Yeah. Whose basic position on international development... Super hardline Brexiter as well. There shouldn't be any. Yes. 
Um, so why she was ever given the brief in the first place, I'm not quite sure. Um, but yeah, she's super, super Brexit. One of the kind of truest believers, I think, in the whole party, which is, you know, why she was in the cabinet in the first place. Hmm. But she's been forced to resign because on her holiday, in inverted commas, she was having secret meetings with Israeli officials. Twelve of them. Secret, secret, not meaning not public, meaning the government didn't know about it. Well, the foreign office didn't know. Um, hmm. Or didn't know about all of them. There's a suggestion they might have known about one, but not told Theresa May. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so there's there's some meetings that were going on which Theresa May didn't know about. There were some others going on which the Foreign Office didn't know about. And this was all supposed to be while she was on a family holiday, which she just mm. happened to bump into Benjamin Netanyahu, as you do. And one of the <laughs> things that she said in one of these meetings was she offered the Israelis aid, uh, humanitarian aid, for settlers in the Golan Heights, which is an occupied region which is actually part of Syria's sovereign territory. Yeah. Um, which, whatever your opinions on the current Syrian government, and mine are not particularly fond, uh, was occupied by the Israelis after the Six-Day War, and has remained under military occupation since then. So, yeah. I'm not surprised she's been forced to resign. I'm surprised it took as long as it did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a couple of days. And the only reason she, she got forced out in the end is because some more meetings turned up that she hadn't... Because when she apologised to May the first time round... She said there was no more to come, and then there was more, mm. and then that's when she finally got rid of her. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it's beggar's belief, absolutely well, beggar's belief. It also leaves the government with a bit of a hole in that it's always worth remembering that Theresa May campaigned for Remain, mm. so she needs credentials that she genuinely supports Brexit. Now, yeah. she needs to make sure that she she needs she has something to prove to the Brexit wing of the party. So bringing on Pretty Patel made that very very clear, and she, I think she had exactly equal numbers in her. Yes. Cabinet she's been taking for people who supported sure Remain and, and leave. So now she's got a hole. Yeah. She has to fill it with another arch Brexiteer. Yes. Um, unfortunately, as uh, Stephen Bush pointed out this morning in his morning email, the list of uh, hardline Brexiteer MPs with an interest in international development is exactly one. And <laughs> unfortunately, that one is Preeti Patel. Yes. So there's no one else really to Hardline Brexit and interest in international development don't really go together that well. No. They really, really don't. I think of any other hardline Brexit MPs that, that, that have a bit of sort of status. It's Jacob Rees-Mogg. Well, I mean, this is it. It's not impossible. <laughs> Would Theresa May want someone who's arguably more popular in the party than she is in her cabinet? Friends close. But then again, she's got Boris Johnson. But I don't know if he is more popular than her at the moment. Probably with the activists. But yeah. then again, it's the Tory party. Activists aren't important in the Tory party. <laughs> no, Exactly. Well, I mean, Boris Johnson's had his own fair share of scandals this week. That's very true. Because he's managed to drop some poor woman who is out in Iran and has been arrested and accused of spreading propaganda right in it. Mm. She was originally claiming that she'd, um, she was just on, a, on, on holiday in Iran and that, you know, wasn't doing anything illicit at all. Mm. Boris Johnson then, in uh, remarks, I believe in a committee hearing, or it might have been on the floor of the House, but in any case, in, 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 in some remarks said that all she'd been doing was training journalists, which sounds mm. nice, except that's not what she'd claimed, and the Iranians aren't too keen on free press, so no. she's been called back into court, and is now looking like she might have her sentence doubled, which as far as... It's not really the job of the Foreign Secretary to do that. No, it's sort of his job to do the opposite. Mm. Um, so yeah, that in any other time and place would be a resigning issue, but of course, Theresa May is... And there have been calls from both sides of the House for yeah. him to resign. Including from some quite prominent Tories. But Theresa May is so weak, she can't do it. And again, Boris no. Johnson is a Brexiter, albeit a late convert. So if she gets rid of him as well, she's really in trouble. Hmm. And 
Boris is one of those people who he's quite dangerous to have outside your tent. Yes, you don't want mm. him running around stirring up trouble on the back benches, which is the one mm. thing he is kind of good at. That and writing insulting which, which, is, which is the entire issue here. He's caused too much trouble. Yes, stirring things up is, is a Boris Johnson speciality. It's not really a foreign secretary speciality. No, but, they're supposed oh, well. to be the nation's chief diplomat. Hmm. Try and think of a diplomatic conservative. I think Boris Johnson may be very near the bottom of the list. It's not a long list in any case. That's very true. <laughs> but yeah, he certainly wouldn't be my pick. Yeah, so we've got one Secretary of State sexually harassing women. We've got another promising illicit aid to settler colonial apartheid ethno-states in the Middle East. Without the knowledge of the Prime Minister. Without the knowledge of the Prime Minister, already the Foreign Office. And then we've got a third Secretary of State doubling the sentences of British nationals detained abroad. This is not a government I think is long for this world. From 2015, they had unexpectedly come to a majority when not even they thought they were going to. They suddenly did much better than they thought they would. Then, Brexit happened within a year of that, and then Labour started tanking in the polls and they were up at 40% and they had a 20-point lead and what have you. Everyone was saying, somehow the Conservative Party has, by some alchemy, made itself into a major, like, moving into its dominant phase and that they were going to dominate for the next, you know, 15 years and that it was going to take ages for anyone to be able to knock them out. And very, very quickly, within a year since that election, it's, it, it's just a complete mess. Yeah. Entirely coming apart, the seams. Which... Mm. It's, it's amazing how easily it's fallen apart, given how strong they were a few months ago. Yeah. I mean, like you say, people were saying, oh, you know, it, Britain will be conservative until 2030. Mm. Now it looks like making it to the end of 2017 might be a struggle. And it's already yeah, November. Yeah. Like, even given the disaster of the election... Yeah, this has gone worse than it had to. Oh, much, much worse. They've gotten weaker since then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to lose two secretaries of state in a week, and then mm. to have another one who should have gone by now, two MPs suspended. If they lose four more, they lose their majority. Mm. I mean, it's just and are behind in the polls. Yes, albeit not by a huge amount. Not by a huge amount, but but yes, consistently draining. Which at this point in our government's term, they tend to be ahead. Mm. And of course, you've got to remember that they, winning by the small margin that they did, they didn't get a majority. Mm. If they lose by a bit, yes, they're, they're in trouble. And given that it's that we've sort of reverted to this broadly two-party system, small swings around the mid forties in the polls, when it comes to an election, end up actually converting into sizable seat swings. Sometimes, yeah, there's no sort of large S with a large Liberal Democrat going on. No, the Liberal Democrats are looking really, really weak. Hmm. Yes, they, they've uh, completely not had the comeback that people were sort of expecting them to have at some point. Yeah, it collapsed in 2010, um, and it's been, it's been years now, but they've never been able to re- recover from it. And there are very few seats in which they're second place as well. Hmm. You know, at the moment, they've got hardly any MPs, but there, there just aren't that many places where they could realistically gain any either at the next, the next election. So I think we're definitely looking at a, a de facto two-party system for... For the foreseeable, I, on the current, mm. with, with, that, with the exception of the SNP, yes, of course, yeah, in England and Wales, um, I think on the current polling, Labour would take, according to my model that I've not together very roughly, Labour would take one, two, three, four, six, seven, twenty seats off the Tories. Right. So that's Labour up twenty, Tories down twenty. Yes, that's direct seats from the Tories, regardless of whatever else happens elsewhere with the SNP or whatever. They would take on the mm. current polling you would expect Labour to take about 20 seats off the Tories. Which wouldn't give them a majority, but would make them, I believe, the largest party. Yes. Um, there's also the thing that the Conservatives did very well in Scotland compared to what they, their polling 
was liking their, their sort of historical record in Scotland. Yeah. That's quite unlikely to happen again. Oh, yes. Um, and on the, on the other hand, Labour are polling ahead of what they got in the election in Scotland. So they're likely to be able to... Because people are focusing on the fact that Tories got a bit of a comeback in Scotland uh, at the expense of the SNP, but so did Labour and the Lib Dems. Mm. Labour are in a position to carry that on if another election were to happen, and the Conservatives aren't. Yeah. They're likely to lose their gains in Scotland. Labour are likely to build on theirs. There is also the fact that, um, you say in England and Wales, it's a two-party system de facto. But in Wales, Labour are... There's only been one poll, but Labour are 18 points ahead. But before the election, that wasn't true. The, the Tories won, were ahead in a couple of polls in Wales, I think. They did very well in the local elections in Wales. Hmm. Yeah, people were worried that, that um, the Conservatives would, would beat Labour in Wales for the first time, I think, since like 1920. Hmm. That did not happen in the end. But... It did not, no. So yes, not looking very good for the current government. No, I've had I've heard some stuff that um, I, don't, I don't really know much detail about it, but it's something that Paul Mason said. So I, I really should look into this at some point. But that Wales is quite a unique example in that it's a country very, very far down the route of post-industrial society, like very, very completely, and it has an amount of autonomy of its own. Mm. And there's not really another example of that anywhere else in the West. The places that have that level of autonomy and such a consistently centre-left government, and a very post-industrial. No, so in terms of like job insecurity and um, like information economy and post-industrial, how an economy is supposed to look and how you, how you protect workers' rights in that kind of a context, Wales is sort of at the forefront. Shall we turn then to the Paradise Papers? Yes. So um, this is sort of a, another big document dump on sort of the, the same model as the Panama Papers back in 2016. Uh, again, through the same newspaper in Germany, in fact, the Süddeutsche Zeitung, the South German Times. This is less material in terms of number of documents, but more high-profile people implicated. For example, there is, hmm. there is some, some business dealings that uh, people who work very closely for Donald Trump have had with um, members of Putin's inner circle, um, which would sort hmm. of seem to support the allegations that the Russians had something to do with the... Um, liaising with the, Donald, with the Trump campaign in America, which would, of course, yeah. be illegal um, and could result in Trump's impeachment should the Democrats take back the House. That was something quite surprising about the Panama Papers, which is that it's, it's a major expose about corruption and what have you. Mm. And Putin wasn't implicated in anything. David Cameron did, though. He, he did, yes. Nothing seemed to happen with that. No, no. Oh, to be fair, very, very quickly afterwards, he did happen to stop being prime minister. That is true. That is true. The, the other sort of big um, kind of media talking point on the, the Paradise Papers has been the Queen, who's... Yes, that, that's uh, an upgrade from the Prime Minister to the Queen. That's more high profile. Yes, indeed. So she uh, invests her money through the Duchy of Lancaster, which is um, sort of her, her more, um, I suppose, commercial arm. It's not quite the right word, but yeah. So uh, the Duchy of Lancaster invests money on her behalf. Is that a sub-part of the Crown Corporation, or is that just another legal entity that she also happens to own? I believe it's a separate legal entity, because it, it, it's um, she, it, it's a different title. She is the Duke of Lancaster, as well as being the Queen of the United Kingdom. As, as if being Queen wasn't enough. It's kind of her equivalent of the, of the Duchy of Cornwall. Anyway, so, yeah, so um, one of the investment companies that uh, the Duchy of Lancaster was using has been connected with some of the documents of this, including a total of around 10 million um, from the Queen's private treasury was uh, held in the Cayman Islands and Bermuda. And there's mm. been uh, money linked to 
um, the company Bright House, which is a rent-to-own firm, which has been criticised for irresponsible lending on the sort of same lines as payday lenders like Wonga.com and people like that. It's not quite the same mm. business model, but they've been accused of sort of the same kinds of practices. Obviously, the Queen herself wouldn't have had any knowledge of yes. the specifics. I very much doubt that Elizabeth Windsor knows, knows anything about this. <laughs> no, well, she does now. And I imagine, yeah, yeah. I imagine a few people were rather chewed out when she did find out. But in any case... This reminds me of when the Church of England was caught up in something similar yeah, to this recently. Yeah, because uh, Justin Welby was bang on about um, being opposed to paleo loans, and then it turned out that the, the church was actually investing money in Wonga. Mm. I think it goes to show that they, they really didn't know anything about it. They... Oh, yeah. yeah. No, but this is the point. is It's it's irresponsible to use these kinds of investment companies because you, you mm. don't know where your money's going. But, but you are funding these companies. Uh, okay, in this case, it was a, an irresponsible rent company that's you know one thing but in the past um there have been you know links to kind of arms companies through these kinds of things Mm -hmm. it is irresponsible to put your wealth into these kinds of investment funds because you don't know where they're going and it kind of just exposes the how interconnected the the kind of global system of capital really is the fact that you have you know the secretary of state for whatever in america yeah Investing Very in the same point. firms as Donald Trump's best mate, as uh, Vladimir Putin's best mate, rather. But yeah, if you've if you've got a complicated financial system like this one, you are going to get these kinds of connections forming, and it creates a sort of set of perverse incentives for people who are supposed to be in positions of political authority because their their interests don't align with the interests of the people they're supposed to be working on behalf of. No, so there's an aspect to this which is that individuals using these kinds of mechanisms to uh, avoid tax isn't as important directly as when corporations do it because that's when genuinely large amounts of money that could be going to you know funding the welfare state and what have you are being lost by corporations that are being allowed structurally to avoid it yeah but the reason why when individuals do it it's significant particularly if they're politicians is because these are the people that's supposed to be trying to stop the corporations from doing this so how could they ever be looking to try and close these loopholes if they're using them themselves Mm. Yeah, exactly. And also, it isn't just individuals. I mean, Apple, for example, has been caught up in similar kind of allegations. Uh, they moved all of their um, overseas funds to Jersey after because they mm. used to store it in Ireland, but then Ireland shored up its corporation tax system, so they then moved it over to Jersey, which has basically no corporation tax whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it is also slightly different when the Queen does it, because yeah, she isn't just an individual. She's yeah. also the the personal embodiment of the crown, yes. which is quite a large legal entity. Yeah, which is not only essentially a massive corporation, but also the head mm. of state. So yes, yeah. If the Queen does something, it is, in effect, as if Britain does something, because she has mm. that position as head of state. Frustrating also that in the aftermath of the Panama Papers, nothing really happened with Cameron. There were lots of people um, accused of misbehaviour. It wasn't pursued. We've since had the explosion of popularity for Jeremy Corbyn. They had the Bernie Sanders mm. phenomena in America. So I think this has received a little more attention because people's focus is more on inequality and more on how um, the super-rich corporations and individuals both kind of screw away their wealth to avoid funding the services which, you know, that money should be going towards. But Yes, the, the public conversation is sort of in a place where it can talk about this sort of thing more seriously at the moment. Yes, but even so, there's, it's not... Hasn't been talked about that much. It's it's kind of been buried. I mean, there has been a real flurry of news recently, so it's understandable and that's to an extent. But it has sort of been buried very quickly. Mm. And this is you know big big money. I mean, Apple are the largest corporation on the planet, and 
they don't pay much tax. No. You know, Google don't pay really any tax. You know, it's huge corporations. Lots of food, you know, people like Google in particular have this kind of folksy charm to them. You know, everything's colourful and they pretend to be your friend and all of this. But actually, they're, they're not, you know, they are cold-heartedly ruthless corporate entities. There are still a hierarchically organised system of power with people above who give orders that have to be followed by yeah. the people below them in the hierarchy that has the single goal of making profit. You know, the fundamentals of capitalism are still there. But the trouble with this is that sort of in the neoliberal era, the sort of Faustian bargain that the centre-left parties did was say, OK, we'll turn a blind eye to sort of corporate what have you, and um, we will say uh, you can have your deregulation or whatever, but we will skim a bit off the top and it, we'll use it to fund our welfare state. That was the understanding. And that's sort of what held New Labour together. That's why quite a lot of people on the left of the party still signed up to the basic programme of the Labour government, the last one, because they were able to unite behind the idea that we should increase public spending on services and things. That doesn't work if they don't pay tax. No. It also doesn't work if you have a government that couldn't care less about public services, but that's... Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was the flip side that the centre-right parties did, which is that they, they knew they could get people to sort of accept a deregulation which people don't naturally want to accept if they say, well, well, we'll give you lots of public services and that'll, that'll be nice. Which is really what people wanted coming out of the 80s because, you know, NHS was not in a good state when they'd always left it. But, I mean, it is, it is completely ridiculous. I mean, you think that the, the corporation tax rate in this country is, you know, decreasing, gone down from about, I think it was about 22% before the Tories came in now. I think it's down to about 17%. Um, in America, hmm. they're talking about, uh, Donald Trump's talking about cutting it by 15 points. They have, relative to us, a fairly high corporate tax rate in America, um, but very, very Yeah, low. so I always find that odd. Very, America very tends income. to have quite low taxes. In, pretty much across the board, America has low taxes, with the exception of corporation tax, yeah. which is surprisingly high. But, as I say, the Republicans are now talking about changing that, cutting 15 percentage points off of that tax over there. It might partly be because everyone wants to set up shop in America. Yeah. So they can afford to sort of charge a premium. This is a thing that people sometimes bring up um, in conversations about tax avoidance by corporations which is that, well, we should just have a lower tax rate so that they don't feel like they have to avoid it. But that's not the premise of, uh, you know, democratic state plus capitalism. That's, that's not the premise of this whole thing. That's not how... That's, that can't be the relationship between a democratic state and, and a global corporate system, that they get to dictate policy. Well, I mean, that is the premise. <laughs> that, that, that is what actually happens. Yes. But we, we can't explicitly say that. We can't allow... Uh, we can't start accepting that and making policy based on it, based on the idea that that's the way things are and we're just going to have to deal with it. No, we should decide on our own tax rates democratically. And if that then ends up leading to a contradiction, that means that there's something wrong with the system more fundamentally. It doesn't mean we should just, you know, not do what we've democratically decided to. It's also important, I think, to have uh, international cooperation on this. This is why I think the EU has such potential as an institution mm. despite all its many flaws is because the only way you can really combat capital on a global scale is by organizing labor on a on a global scale yeah and and the only way that states can resist the depredations of capital assuming they come under the control of left or center-left governments is by organizing together so the eu while mm. it remains a neoliberal club is an institution which will promote neoliberal policies that's obvious but if we can Elect. Well, this the thing is that the EU could be an international forum. It's just that there isn't an the only part of this equation that has currently got itself internationally organised properly is the corporate side of the equation. Yeah. Whereas the other side of that, the 
the, the popular organizations, the people who are going to try and uh, work for, you know, people, basically, isn't properly internationally organized. So international forums end up looking like corporate forums, because corporations are the only thing that's properly international at the moment. This is the basic problem with uh, the kind of Marine Le Pen nationalism, or well, it's one of the many problems with it. <laughs> Um, she set herself up as I'm a nationalist as opposed to a globalist yeah. but the point is that the proper counterpoint to globalism can't be nationalism because the entire problem with globalization is that the nation state can't do anything about it on its own so you, you have to have the, the proper opposition to in, an international corporate system is an international popular organisation and that's the only way you can you can prevent that kind of capital flight from occurring because if the whole of Europe has the same or roughly similar tax rates then there's there's nowhere for them to go they have to operate somewhere that's also why we should exert more authority over our crown dependencies I think um, mm, and our overseas territories and all of the other ridiculously complicated semi-independent parts of the UK a lot of the issues that we face at the moment not just this one and the, and the directly economic ones but also I don't know climate change for example uh, um changing nature of intellectual property now that we have automation and what have you. All of the sort of emerging problems of the 21st century are problems of planetary scale. And so to face them, you need more international organisation. So I think that's the direction that we have to be going in, basically, ultimately. Which has always been the position of, you know, international socialist movements. I mean, socialism in one country cannot work. It's, yeah. it, it just can't, you know. Trotsky did nothing wrong. <laughs> well, he did a few things wrong. It was he pretty, did, he did, yeah. Pretty brutal uh, commander of the Red Army. Yeah, quite yeah. yeah I, I, he had I, a very I, special train. I always have arguments with um, people. Like, oh yeah, if, if Trotsky had become leader of the Soviet Union instead of Stalin, it would have been so much better. Like, mm, I don't know about that actually. <laughs> His economics is a sounder theory, but you know, it probably would have been better than Stalin. He uh, maybe, but as commanders in the Red Army, Trotsky was worse. Trotsky was much more ruthless. Yeah. Stalin was incompetent, but um, Trotsky was the more brutal of the two. Um, mm. Now, Stalin was kind of obsessed with bureaucracy, and that, that ultimately was what strangled off the Soviet Union, but who knows? Anyway, Lenin... Trotsky was, was also like explicitly arguing for more democracy in the, in the, in the future Soviet Federal yeah. Republic thing. But you've got to remember, he was also a politician. Lenin also argued for that at, some, at times, but never did it, because that is what the population will have wanted, and so obviously it's what they said. This is a, this is an excellent transition into sort of very naturally happen all by itself because if you get a bunch of incorrigible leftists in a place they will start talking about Trotsky and Stalin and Lenin eventually but this week actually does mark the hundred year anniversary of the, the October it Revolution. It certainly does. Yes. Yeah. It was actually it was on one Tuesday the seventh of November is the anniversary of the October Revolution. Um, Obviously. And well, of course, why wouldn't the anniversary of the October Revolution be in early November? Yeah, it would be ludicrous to suggest anything else. <laughs> Stupid. Gregorian calendars. Things. Yes, yes Russia was still problems. on the Julian calendar at the time. Yes. So. Yeah. Orthodox Christianity for you. But, um, yep. but, yes, so we were supposed to be recording actually on the, uh, the, the anniversary, but that ended up not occurring. No, um, no. I had I had to try and get a degree. Yes, which is a completely it's ridiculous very pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think should be abandoned by all right-thinking people. <laughs> anyway, I thought it would be nice to have a a quick little chat about um about the the legacy of of the of the October Revolution and yeah, right. what, what it means for the, the the left today because that seems to be what everyone else is doing. So I think we should get in on the action. Yeah, so I'll take it away there, David. 
Well. <laughs> I like, love a nice big well. <laughs> in the 20th century, basically, there were three broad strains in the left, you might say. What you might call the social, social democratic tradition, what you might call the Leninist tradition, and what you might call the libertarian tradition, or the anarchist tradition. And in their own way, all of them had their own achievements, and all of them ultimately failed to change capitalism fundamentally. They all succeeded in very different ways, and they all failed in very different ways as well. I think that's fair to say. And with all of them had sort of disappeared by the early 90s, or not disappeared, been actively smashed by paramilitary violence in many cases. But In, in Europe and America, they, uh, North America, they sort of, social democracy sort of struggled on a bit longer in Latin America. That's true, actually, yes. But yeah. Um, but in, the, in this second decade of the 21st century, it would appear that straightforward left-wing has some critical things to say about capitalism, leftism, has started to re-emerge again. Mm. Which is good for us. Because it means we have an audience for this podcast. Yeah, yes, very much so. But is it taking something characteristic of any of the primary strains of 20th century leftism? Is it taking the form of any of those? I don't know. I don't think it fits properly, any of them. It appears to be predominantly social democratic, at least in Europe. Mm. But also, you've got large sections of Syria that are now being governed on an anarchist basis. Yeah. Well, that was really... That, that, that's the creation of the Civil War. It's interesting that the kind of the high point of the anarchist tradition in the 20th century was during the Spanish Civil War. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting that you have that kind of parallel in Syria with the, the, the creation of the popular committees there. I actually hmm. wrote about them in my undergraduate dissertation, but for some oh, reason, right. the actual technical name that they gave themselves has vanished from my mind, so apologies for any Syrians listening. Hmm. Um, we should have a bunch of pa- people from Papua New Guinea listening. I, I don't know why that is. I, che- we? I checked the stats on the SoundCloud, and our, our top three countries are Britain, America, and Papua New Guinea. I'm, I'm slightly surprised that we've even got Americans. I, yeah, it's very <laughs> odd. I, SoundCloud does weird things with its... Yeah, I don't know if that's people listening through Papua New Guinea and... That's a good point. ...based... VPNs or something, I don't know, but there's there's quite a lot, and they all seem to be from the same town. Anyway, never mind. That's that's. Well, maybe it's one person's heard about us by chance. They tell their friends. Yeah, that's possible, entirely possible. But anyway, so... I do think they speak English in Papua New Guinea. So do they? I, must I, I actually, I think New Guinea's one of the places that has the most complicated linguistics. Yeah, it has. Anywhere. It has, tons and tons <laughs> it has of loads languages. of languages. But so I think we'd leave that. But um... yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's not get into that one. But yeah, it's worth mentioning. But yeah, I think I think yeah. it, it, it's as you say, the, the social democratic tradition. I think is the basis for a lot of it. Uh, certainly in, you know, say Britain, you know, Jeremy Corbyn obviously comes out of the kind of the, the, the Benite sort of social democratic kind of left wing of social democracy. The social the... democratic version of radical left wing stuff. Yeah. But I, there are, there's a lot of elements of a more horizontalist structure, which I think is is kind of the inheritance from the anarchist tradition. You had yes. like, with, with like the UK uncut and um, the, the protests in 2011 you had a very, everything was organised, there was no leaders of those movements, they were all horizontalist movements, and the, the kind of the parallel uh, emergence of um, Occupy, um, mm. and and even the Arab Spring, to the extent it was a, a left-wing uprising, though obviously Islamist elements and, and, and various other elements mixed in, but the, the left-wing mm. part of the Arab Spring, again, as you were saying with Syria, organised on a very horizontalist basis, which is, which is something which you didn't necessarily get with old-fashioned social democracy. I mean, you know, the Labour Party is no. very... You know, in the early 20th century, it's actually a very top-down hierarchical organisation. Very um, much so. The, the, the Bolsheviks before the revolution were more democratic than the British Labour Party. Both mm. um, on Certainly. Uh, that, I mean, obviously, the Electoral College was only abolished in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, and that... What did I been about? Yeah. Was it, it might, might have been 20, 2012. But yeah, 
under regular land. Um, uh, so yeah. Yes, that's this. And the, and the flip side of that is that there's not a major communist party in Britain. No. When there was. Well, there were, there were loads of communist parties in Britain. But the point was that in the 20th century, there were several times when the communist party had MPs. I think that's very unlikely to happen again. Well, they were kind of torn apart, though, because they couldn't agree whether they were Stalinists or Trotskyists or Maoists or whatever mm. else it was. And they had a very... They subscribed to that very authoritarian version of communism, which was the hallmark of the, the, the Soviet and the, and the Chinese. Yes, yeah, because that's what I'm saying, is that that, yeah. that third sort of aspect of 20th century leftism that was very, very powerful and influential, just like anarchism and social democracy were, does not appear to be coming back. But anarchism is more than it did the first time round. All three of them failed. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of, I think that what happens in the 21st century will have to be something that isn't any of them. Yes. But I, I think that whatever it is, it should probably take more um, influence from uh, libertarians than from Stalinists. I think it's a good thing that that appears to be what's happening. Well, I'm glad we can agree on that, at least. Hmm. All the tankies can leave their comments comments below. No, uh, ice, no ice pick or Kronstadt jokes, please. But oddly, it is social democracy that's come back the most dramatically, though. Yes. It's the least dramatic of the three, I think. But... Well, it, it, it's, it poses a more gradualist transition, but mm. at the same time, I think people see it as more achievable in the short term. The, pro- mm. the problem that, that, say, anarchism has is... It, it, it's, a, it's a long build-up to the one great revolutionary moment, and then, if it works, ideally, the immediate collapse of the state and the ushering in of uh, a, a libertarian communist society. Now, that's fine, and it's all very well, and there's you know a rich intellectual tradition of the kind of libertarian anarchist left, but it doesn't mean very much to people living under capitalism now if you tell them that no. at some point there'll be a glorious revolution and everything will be different, whereas social mm. democracy says, right, this is what we can achieve in the next year. This is what we can achieve mm. in the next five years, the next 10, 15, 20, 50, 100 years. Um, and it's especially at a, at a time when people are sort of, we, they've had decades of not really having anything to, any, any sort of ideal to strive for. It's very, very difficult to sell people this idea of we will we'll come up with this entirely new thing and imagine a completely different future. Yeah. Whereas what social democracy can do is it can, it can look at capitalism and say, that's not very good, that's not very good, that's not very good, and here's things that we're going to do about it. It suits itself to a... A movement still working out how to be self-confident again, I think. I said this is why I decided to join the Labour Party, not because the you know the goals of the 2017 manifesto are mine, because they don't go nearly far enough, but because they are putting forward a policy program under Jeremy Corbyn now, which I think could actually do some good. Um, mm. I think Jeremy Corbyn is considerably more radical than than his manifesto, mm. the manifesto that he stood on. Um, I mean, obviously he had to make concessions. Yes, um, right. I do think that that manifesto is the sort of manifesto that Jeremy Corbyn should have stood on. Uh, yes, given the situation, that was the best way to go. I think. Yeah, especially given the, the polling beforehand. If he'd gone too radical, I mean, that's how you do electoral politics. You get in on a popular basis, and then you do what you've said, and then you see whether you have a mandate to do more. Yes, yeah. At least that's what you should do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's also, I think, some of the the, the things which are starting to be picked up by. Um, people in the in the kind of new left if you can call it that particularly actually um john mcdonald's been talking a lot about things like this but it, it, the the problems and also the opportunities that are presented by things like automation mm. and you know the idea of universal basic income which has been floated around they've tried it in finland um switzerland nearly voted for it. i think we've mentioned this before mm. but those are ideas which didn't really exist in the 20th century no. they are something new um Podemos have talked about these kinds of things as well so it's not a peculiarly british thing by any means no um, no no it, it, it's those 
those new ideas which I think are going to sort of be some of the most important actually as we move into sort of the mid-century. It, it does appear to me that the 21st century faces new problems, problems that are, are qualitatively different from the problems of the 20th century. And the radical left appears to be basically the only people trying to come up with new solutions to fit the new problems. Yeah. Everyone else is just running with their old line that, they were, that they've been doing for centuries. It's actually, it's actually really interesting um, because, you know, obviously in the Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx talks about all the solid melting into air, the kind of the constant hmm. turnover and change that capitalism brings, like nothing stays still, there's constant innovation. That has stopped. That has ceased to be the case. In the last yeah. 10 years, since the 2008 recession, even slightly before, innovation has massively slowed. Um, the only place where real innovation is taking place is in the financial sector. And there it's just more and more complicated ways of making money that doesn't make its way into the rest of the society. Hmm. There is innovation. Well, it's, it's arguable that that's, that that's very often what happens on a cycle of about every I think, 125 years or so. There's a sort of sticking point hmm. where capital stops really working out how to invest itself properly in an economy. So it retreats into the finance system. But it's longer even than that, I think, since we last had a period of, of stagnation of this length. No, no. Uh, well, this is what Paul Mason argues, which is that capitalism goes through these kind of major step changes, the last one being uh, the, the turn of the 20th century, as, as in going into the 20th century, um, the, and, and that led into... When, when capitalism got going again, that was what the Bel Air Park was. Um, Paul Mason argues that this one is different, that there is no way for capitalism to uh, sort of unstick itself and get going again, which yeah. is why the stagnation period has been much longer than it normally is. I think I, th- I think it's something like 170 years since there's been a period of no wage growth, no productivity growth that's lasted this long, and that's the, that's the real problem: is that productivity isn't going up, wages have stagnated, so people aren't people are used to feeling like their lives are slowly improving. That's kind of the the pact that was mm. struck with in the 1930s and 40s, the New Deal in America, the, uh, the Attlee reforms in Britain. That was the, the... And even through recessions, even surviving the Thatcher years, that pact remained fundamentally in place. It's gone now. There is yes. no... There's no productivity increase. That means there's no wage increase. Technological it's, innovation is kind of constrained to, as we said, financial the finance sector and also sort of consumer goods that don't particularly benefit society in kind of meaningful ways. Yeah. Well, that's, the, that's the old Marxist argument, not to get too, you know, uh, right on, but the, yeah. <laughs> the, it's, it's actually slightly post-Marxist, but the idea of the tendency of the profit rate to fall. Capitalism, yeah. when it adopts a model, the model immediately starts making itself obsolete to the point where you can't keep making profit in the old way as well. The immediate response of capital is always to try and suppress wages to maintain, to, to get profits back up. Organised labour fights back. There's a deadlock. Usually capital retreats into the finance system. Um, and then eventually someone comes up with a new model to innovate their way out of it. And so that you can have growth carrying on on the basis of not cutting wages again. And so growth starts again. That has not happened. In fact, it should really have happened in the 70s. But instead of the deadlock remaining until someone innovated their way out of it, the deadlock remained until someone just smashed organised labour out of the way and then gave people access to credit instead of increasing wages again. Yeah. So, as a sort of... Since the 70s, the post-war model of capitalism that should have ended in about the 70s has been sort of living on borrowed time. And the whole uh, um, 
enormous quantities of debt that it's been trying to run itself off of since then blew up in its face in 2008 and it's not really known what to do ever since. Have I, have I wrapped that up too neatly? You, you sort of have, I've got nothing yeah. to say. <laughs> I just, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. One thing I will say is that it seems to me more and more that the the predictions made by Capital are truer of the modern era than they have been at any point since that book was written. And oh, actually, yes. And actually, if there was a time, you know, where socialism of some variety was to become the logical next step, not just something to aspire towards, but in a kind of historically deterministic sense, not that I'm saying history is deterministic, but in that mm. sense that it becomes the logical next step, I think now is that time. So there's been a lot of very sophisticated economics done studying the way capitalism works and what have you. But Marx and the people that call themselves Marxists who came after Marx, it's sort of the only time when, how do I put it, capitalism's been analysed to that level of detail from a non-capitalist perspective. So whether you, whether you thought that it was a good idea or not, you're try- it, it's analysing it in a great deal of detail without assuming that it's a good idea in the first place. So it's sort of the only the only critique which can handle both the idea of capitalism and non-capitalism. So it's the only one that could possibly talk about a kind of transition where capitalism is finding it difficult to even work in the normal capitalist way, which is what's happening now. Capitalism is finding it very hard to do capitalism properly. Marx, even towards the end of his life, um, wrote, I think it's called The Fragment on Machines. But it's a sort of thought experiment. He didn't finish it because he was... It was towards the end of his life. He never really developed it very much. Hmm. But it was about imagining a perfect machine that never broke down and didn't require updating and and, and was and didn't require you to, any labour to be done on it. And it just worked. And if you insert that into a market system, what does it do? What does it do to the price mechanism? What does it do to um, uh, uh, wages? Uh, uh, what does it do to everything? How does, how does capitalism deal with that? Basically, his answer was, it can't. It breaks. And software particularly, but also any kind of automated production in which the automation runs on software gets very, very close to that idea. And closer and closer all the time. Yeah. I mean, that's what driverless cars will do to the transport industry. Mm. They will completely break it. But, example, what sets the prices of songs on iTunes? Because it can't be supply, because supply is infinite. Yeah. It can't really be demand, because demand fluctuates all over the place and the price doesn't and for all we know it's effectively infinite anyway yeah it can't be some kind of intrinsic quality because all the the songs are the same yeah yeah um it's because apple has a monopoly and it's decided that's going to be the price yeah so when the normal market price mechanism doesn't work anymore because the technology that you're working with is sort of inherently capitalist systems can't handle it the only way that you can maintain profit is by forming big monopolies that then just set prices. So this is why information technology companies tend to be very, very large. Yes. And, and why you... For example, we have a big six in energy in this country that produce energy. But there's not a big six search engines. There's just Google. But the thing is that... Take Uber, for example. That's not actually a very complicated idea. Someone else could just write an alternative to Uber. There probably is one out there. Well, there are a couple, actually. Lyft is one. Yeah. But the, the fundamental problem with that, the thing that they're running up against, is Uber. The fact that that exists. Yeah. And so the thing that people want out of that is the fact that everyone uses the same one and that you can 
so it's an information exchange thing. Well, that's what makes Facebook so uh, uh, ubiquitous. Yeah, because there's no point having you know that's why Google Plus never took off. There's no point having two social networks. Mm, no one needs two social networks to do the same thing. You can have you know things like Instagram or Twitter, which are are a different thing. But there's mm. no point having two versions of Facebook because the whole the, all of the utility of Facebook comes from the fact that everybody's on it. But the reverse of that would be something like Wikipedia, which is run on a non-capitalist model. It's free people doing stuff for free, that, mm. and the products that they that you get out of them you can get for free. So it's a totally it's it's purely communist basically if you were to try and set up an online uh, um, encyclopedia that was run on a traditional profit capitalist model where you put lots of ads everywhere and you could make lots of money off of it the problem that you run up against is the fact that wikipedia exists yeah. and so you could never outcompete that no of course not so in these kind of new industries where it's very un- uh, um, insecure labor and uh, there's not much workers rights and things like uber for example there's there's two models that you can follow, both of which uh, have that sort of same problem with the difference being the ownership model. Mm. So you could plausibly have an Uber that was run like Wikipedia. If, if you just made all the software open source and everyone used the same one and nobody used it in particular and it was just a, a free way of people working out who's got a car and who needs a lift and stuff, there are that, some, would work, that would work fine. There are some apps on that model. I don't know whether they've reached Britain, but there's one in America um, which was started by particularly by um, Black um, ex Uber employees, um, I think, oh. in, I think in Chicago. But, I mean, these are these are things that have started to happen. Um, but you like you say, they run up against the existing kind of more capitalist competition. It it would seem to me that we've got a capitalist system that is sort of the state, the material conditions of the economy. Not to get too Marxist again, are are such that. There's lots of things that are inherently non-capitalist, straining to come into existence, that can't properly, because they're trying to insert themselves into a fundamentally different kind of system, which is capitalism, which is what runs everything at the moment. So that's kind of how I'd view something like a universal basic income. It would be as an attempt to kind of take that pressure off. I don't think it's an endgame thing. It's not a way to solve the issue. But it would it would help things that are that that would be able to provide a sort of next stage of economic development beyond the problems that capitalism's currently getting, uh, it, would, it would help things like that to, to get going yeah. because it, it, would, it would allow things to reshape themselves properly without that problem of them running up against the old system. To me, it's a, it's a necessary... It, kind of, it, it is made necessary by the fact that automation is going to trend upwards. Hmm. But th- that's the thing, is that if you, if you brought it about, then what it would be used to solve is that people aren't getting so many jobs and things and that there are, people can't get wages in the normal way. And so they'll switch over to the universal basic income bit, and then they'll do non-wage labour in the rest of the economy, because that's what's going to need to replace it. Um, but the more that happens, the more you erode the base that's paying for the universal basic income. So ultimately, it will make itself obsolete. But I'd say that if, if that's managed properly, that can be a good thing, because then you can end up properly decoupling the idea of work and wages, and then you've got a non-capitalist system. Yeah, but there's, there's also the, the, the fact that you can levy the taxes on the corporations that own the automating that's auto, the automated software and machines i think that's the the, the, kind of the general idea at least in sort of the medium term that mm. you you yes you will erode the, the base of people paying income tax but corporation tax will still be a thing mm. um but yeah i mean obviously the idea of decoupling labor you know 
the, the idea that you have to work, that there's a moral imperative to work, is obviously a pernicious fallacy. Mm-hmm. Really. I mean, there's no re- reason why it should be the case. I've never never met anyone who could answer the question, why is working better than not working? I mean, mm-hmm. the, you know, there are some practical reasons. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, ultimately, occupied. Do, do like to spend their time doing stuff. Yes, yes. There's, people there's have free time, they would use it for something. There's a reason to be for activity, but why is there, there isn't necessarily a reason for jobs. Like waged labour, yeah. Yes. There's no moral imperative. Um, the the idea that waged labour is a sort of soft version of slavery is is very well established in, in like when it when it first started to come about wage labour in our sense that was basically what all working people considered it as to the yeah. point where it was the slogan of the Republican Party. Yeah, yeah. Abraham Lincoln won the presidency on the basis of the idea that wage labour was a bad thing fundamentally. Yeah, I mean, it's also not that old an idea. Really? No, not I mean, as as a kind of a major part of the economy, it's very new. I mean, it, it's always existed to a point, you know, within like the bureaucracy of like old, you know, states. But as as a kind of significant sector, wage labour is very new. Hmm. So there's no reason why it must remain part of the economy because it, it hasn't been for long. So and no I think, arguably, of... there are some quite serious reasons why it can't remain a major part of the economy for long. Yeah, of which automation is, I would say, the most pressing. But the, the trouble is that all of this is very good, but in the context of climate change, we don't really have the time to let it evolve in the normal way. We sort of need to... This is very pressing, and the corporate system is what's standing in the way of dealing with it properly. I did want to quickly mention, this isn't really a political uh, issue, but I just wanted to, to let everyone know that we've got some new cousins, because they've oh, discovered yes. a new species of orangutan in Indonesia. Unfortunately, nice. there are only 800 of them. Oh, yeah. Uh, so if I remember correctly, there were previously two species of orangutan that we knew about. There were. Um, pre- previously, there were two species of all kinds of create apart from us. There's only one of us. Hmm. Um, but now, one of them apparently has three. There is, there's two kinds of chimps, and there's two kinds of gorillas. Apparently three kinds of orangutan. It's the first new species of great ape to be discovered since the bonobo, which was 1925. I think. Ah, yes, they that's were... the smaller of the two yeah, chimp the, ones. The, the matriarchal one, the one that... Um, yes, the nice or, one. Yes, the nice one, rather than the chimpanzees, which do war. Mm. The only other animal to do it properly like us. Mm. The, the ants sort of do it, but they're more of like a weird hive mind situation going on. It's not yes. proper war. <laughs> Often when you hear about like intelligence experiments going on with chimps, teaching them to sign language and things, that's usually bonobos. Yes, yeah. Well, you can sort of talk to a bonobo. Whereas the the the, the other the sort of common chimp, I think it's common just chimpanzee, yeah, they incredibly aggressive, mm. really incredibly, and really really strong. They rip you in two if they felt like it. Mm. They're quite small, but their their arms are just so incredibly powerful. Mm. Really long arms as well. It's really odd. They're like legs. Yeah. Well, I suppose they sort of because they you know use them in a similar way, don't they? They have mm. to be quite. Yes. But the feet on the end of their actual legs look like hands. Love a chimp. Anyway, yeah. Love a chimp, yeah. We've got some, we've got some, some new cousins, but they're already nice. endangered, which yep. sort of, I think, highlights the not so much climate change and more habitat destruction. But yeah, we we don't even know how many species we've driven extinct because we've likely driven quite a few extinct without ever even discovering them first. The Indonesian government are going to just wall it off, essentially. Mm. <laughs> but like, right, no one's coming in here. Mm. I think the furthest north monkeys live is northern Japan. Oh, right. it's pretty far north. Yeah. Um, uh, and you get lemurs, but only on Madagascar. Yeah. I think that's pretty much all. The, 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 the bush babies. Oh. They're primates, aren't they? Are they? Right. I thought they were marsupials. Are they marsupials? I don't know. I'm sure there is another type of primate. There's gibbons. Yeah, the gibbons are 
They are apes, but they're not great apes. They're technically called Galagos, apparently. Hmm. Bush babies. But I prefer bush babies. But yes, they are small yeah. nocturnal primates. Oh, right, okay. And make up the family apparently, according to Wikipedia. Are they not what they call high primates, then? I assume not. Because there's guess. two branches. There's higher primates, which is monkeys and apes. I think there's lower primates, which is, I thought, just lemurs. But maybe bush babies as well. Yes, no, it consists of the Strepsirini, which are the suborder you're talking about. They consist of the lemurs, the galagos, the potos, and the lorises from India and Southeast Asia. Ooh, I've delightful. Never, I've not heard of a loris before, but they're quite nice, aren't they? Hmm. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, it's not just lemurs. Ooh, apparently huh. there, there were extinct ones. Extinct fossils have been found in France and Germany. Huh? Yeah. And also oh, the, uh... Western United States. Imagine a French lemur. <laughs> yeah. Well, but the uh, the ringtail one, that suit the shirt. It would actually, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you know that shirt that all French people wear. Yeah, yeah, that one. The same one that all prisoners wear. Yeah. That yes. One. Yeah. I like that one. That's but not a coincidence. Just, the difference is, is beret French uh, little mask that goes over your eyes. Burglar. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's how that works. French burglars. They just do they wear two <laughs> striped shirts or is it just the one but with both accessories? Who's I think so. Accessory? Yes. Yeah. That would make more sense, wouldn't it? It would. Yeah. Right. What I would you do with the garlic? Well, you have to... You, I mean, the thing around is, the neck. if you carry the garlic around with you as a, as a burglar... You, People think you're French. Yeah, but you also put on the so actual get mission itself, you get noted, wouldn't you, because of the smell. Ah, oh, that's true. It might, it might sort of... If you've got like, a calling card, I suppose, you could leave like, a, little, a little clove <laughs> of garlic <laughs> at every scene of the crime where you... What the hell are we talking about? <laughs> Long enough. I think... I think we really probably should just shut up because this has gone very, very strange. <laughs> Sorry, I've lost it. Yeah. Oh, just... well, I'll be all right in a minute. <laughs> all right, I'm okay. So, yes. Yeah, apparently if you talk about Marxist economic theory for half an hour and then mention bush babies, that, that is the correct combination of topics to send David into a giggling fit. It's the French lemurs with the striking <laughs> no, no, they're not French garlic. lemurs, they're French burglars that look uh, like French lemurs. burglars, yeah. That's very important. Don't get them mixed up. The French lemurs are different. They're perfectly, they're perfectly nice. They're no garlic at all involved. I suppose you could fry one, but it's a bit, a bit gruesome, really. I was going to say, is a, is a lemur nicer with, with garlic? Or <laughs> I don't know. I've, I've not eaten one. Um... I like to feel. I, I like to think that I'd eat most animals. I think I draw the line at primates. I think. Yeah. Slightly, yeah. slightly too close to cannibalism. I'll give most yeah. things a go. But um. But yeah. yeah I wouldn't I'll, eat a chimp. No, I definitely wouldn't eat a chimp. No. No. Even if it was wearing a beret. Especially if it was wearing a beret, it'd be racist. That's, that's true. You know. Anti-French. Yeah. Anti-French. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm calling time. How did we get here? I don't know, but I mean, we're, we're paddling our way out away right now, ladies and gentlemen. You've been listening <laughs> to Revolutionary Dispatches. I can't. You make me laugh, ladies and gentlemen. You've been listening to Revolutionary Dispatches. Thank you, comrades, for your time and attention. Viva la revolution! <laughs> <laughs>